Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 387, The Battle of the Cauldron. Last time, as Rommel was forced to pull his forces together for mutual support, a cauldron or box was formed, just east of where the 150th Brigade Group had been, itself just behind the southern end of the minefield that ran the length of the defensive line. This had worked, as his panzers, artillery, and infantry were now able to support each other, but it also allowed the Desert Fox to peel off a few divisions to attack the 150th Brigade Group. As the 8th Army Commander Ritchie was unaware of what was happening, this allowed Rommel to destroy the unfortunate Brigade Group. As things stood, the Axis force had its supply lines reopened, they were able to defend themselves, and Ritchie was not only forced to give up his plan of attack, but by the end of June 1, 1942, he realized he had lost a brigade group. It was back to the drawing board, with Rommel still in his rear. Of course, there's another way to look at the current situation, the way Rommel was viewing it. He and his were not trapped in the cauldron, but instead, theirs was an oddly shaped wedge behind the main defensive line, with fresh supplies on the way. With that, the Desert Fox was not thinking of defense or retreat, but rather the best way to move forward, along with how to destroy 8th Army. It was time to peruse the maps. Contrast that with 8th Army Headquarters. In the same report General Ritchie made to Auchinleck about the disaster of the 150th Brigade Group, he ended with, I am distressed over the loss of 150th Brigade after so gallant a fight, but still consider the situation favorable to us and getting better daily. Hence, Auchinleck, the CNC Middle East in Cairo, had an overall positive impression of the overall situation. But such was not the case. The Corps commanders, Gott and Nori, senior to Ritchie in service and in battle experience, were less rosy about the future and getting more disgruntled as the hours went by, because they believed it was more wishful thinking than thinking that Ritchie's current role was only temporary. And yet, he was still in command after losing the 150th. Further, Gott and Nori, good personal friends, believed that Ritchie wasn't even the author of his own orders. Rather, they were coming from Cairo, and because of Ritchie's messages, Auchinleck thought things were better in the desert than they actually were. Almost the perfect storm of resentment and distrust, not the ingredients of success. But Ritchie, to his credit, was coming around. Like it had taken him a few days to realize what Rommel was doing in regards to the 150th, he could see victory slipping away, and that Auchinleck did not know the real situation here. So, Ritchie started listening to Gott more and more, anything to stave off defeat and humiliation. Now, by this time, Rommel had worked out several core principles of warfare, and here was the one he was going to try to implement next. Quote, the armor is the core of a motorized army. Everything turns on it and other formations are mere auxiliaries. The war of attrition against the enemy armor must therefore be waged as far as possible by the anti-tank units. One's own armor should only be used to deal the final blow. 
straightforward enough, and in his eagerness, Rommel had tried too early to deliver that final blow with his armor by going around the southern end of the defensive line, but it had almost worked. Now, it was time for a more formalized approach. As for General Ritchie, he would revive Operation Limerick, the big push to Tripoli, as Auchinleck was urging him to do so, only because he did not know of the real situation on the ground. But instead of bringing him up to speed, Ritchie said, yes, sir, and started making plans. That plan called for Gott to be given the 5th Indian Division, who would push west, while General Norrie would have some of his units press in on the cauldron, just to keep Rommel busy and blind to what was really happening. But Gott nor Nori thought much of this, as did the lower-level but experienced officers. But as men were being prepared for this latest send-off, General Frank Messervy, commander of the 7th Armored Division, chimed in with the idea of hitting the cauldron again. It was he that had not attacked Rommel's gathered troops earlier, due to a lack of reconnaissance, but it had to be admitted that if this attack on the cauldron was carried out, then no troops had to move too far west should something go wrong, and Tobruk would have fewer units to come to the rescue. Thus, it was agreed upon. The cauldron would be crushed. Ritchie wrote of this to Auchinleck, but again left out much that would have explained the growing chaos within the Allied ranks. Though he did at least put in his missive, it is absolutely essential that we should wrest from the enemy the initiative, which he is now starting to exercise, and this must be done at the soonest possible moment. In the circumstances, I have decided that I must crush him in the cauldron. Wisely, Ritchie left out before Rommel is left free to crush another brigade group. Thus, Ritchie told Acting Lieutenant General of 13 Corps, William Gott, to get ready, and Gott told his boss, no thanks, this is a disaster in the making. Gott had that kind of big personality that would let him get away with this, and frankly speaking, Ritchie had the kind of personality that let Gott get away with this. So the attack would go to Nori, who would hit the cauldron with his infantry, which is why Gott turned it down. He was predicting World War I numbers of casualties. Probably sensing this, Nori gave overall command of Operation Aberdeen to General Messervy. It had been his idea, after all, and also Lieutenant Colonel Harold Briggs, the commander of 5th Indian Division. With this done, Ritchie went back to 8th Army Headquarters at Gambut, about 20 miles or 32 kilometers east by southeast of Tobruk. And once there, he wrote another profuse letter to Auchinleck about what he would do when Rommel was crushed. Namely, make sure the Desert Fox did not hold up in Benghazi during his hasty retreat, and that he would make ready all the airfields along the North African coastline which would aid Malta and the final push to Morocco. The best laid plans of mice and men. Contrasting this, Rommel's plan, much more subdued but realistic for now, was to destroy all the enemy positions to the south of the cauldron, and this, if successful, would give him several advantages. One, if he needed to retreat, the way would be open, 
and having destroyed the 150th Brigade Group, if Ritchie was going to let him wipe out more isolated Allied troops piecemeal, then Rommel would not look a gift horse in the mouth. He would attack. Thus Rommel sent the 90th Light Division to the south, along with the Trieste Division, to hit the Free French, led by General Marie-Pierre Koenig at Beer Hachem, and finish them off. It was estimated that this would take about 24 hours or so, so Rommel also sent the 21st Panzer to head north to the Sidra Ridge, the top side of the cauldron, to give the British something to do and something to focus on. The good news for Rommel was that the 21st Panzer, though only demonstrating, managed to take out even more British tanks, thus weakening Ritchie's hand even more. However, the Free French taught Rommel a lesson. Having taken mines from Tobruk, the Free French, about 3,700 men, were well protected. But first, the 90th Light and the Trieste had to deal with dust storms. Only after that did they have the freedom to run into those mines, which meant that a path or paths had to be cleared. And this took time. The real fighting did not even start until June 4th. So much for Rommel's 24-hour timeline. Meanwhile, Operation Aberdeen was launched. Messervy and Briggs had decided on the following plan of attack. Coming down the Trig Beer Hachem, not to be confused with the location Beer Hachem, the location of the Free French, the Trig Beer Hachem runs from the Via Balbia along the coast to the southwest until it reaches Beer Hachem, the location of the French. It also runs through Regal Ridge, then just east of Sidra Ridge and near the Knight's Bridge box, which will come into the story later. See episode cover. The main attack would come down the Trig Beer Hachem until the force got close to the Aslog Ridge, just west of the road. Then, after fighting to the top of Oslog Ridge, the Indians would head west and cut right through the cauldron. The attack would not stop until the Allied force reached the point where the 150th Brigade group had been wiped out. Because, one, there might be survivors stuck in the desert, and two, by taking up that position, the two cleared paths through the minefields would be closed once again. Several birds collected one stone used. As for the specifics, this was to be a one-two punch. First, an artillery attack would be launched at the Ariete troops on the ridge, who had their own anti-tank guns in place, so had to be taken out. Then, a night attack by the 10th Indian Brigade Group. Whatever the Ariete had left over after the artillery barrage, the Indians would clear up and clear the way. When the sun rose and the ridge was in Allied hands, Messervy would use his 22nd Armored Brigade Group and the 9th Indian Brigade Group to thrust into the cauldron, clearing or killing all before them as they moved west. To the north of this thrust, again, was Sidra Ridge, where the 21st Panzer was placed. They would be hit by the 32nd Army Tank Brigade on the ridge's west end. One, this would keep the Panzers in place, and two, by not hitting them head-on, the 32nd Tank Brigade would only have to deal with the left flank of the 21st Panzer. Still, they would be tied down, expecting another attack from another direction. 
alas, there were flaws. The 22nd Armored Brigade Group was told that your number one goal was to wipe out all the panzers you could. Don't worry about the 9th Indian Brigade. Officially, it went like this. In case of armored action, infantry are self-supporting. They will not hamper the movement of 22nd Armored Brigade. Another possible problem was that one armored and two Indian infantry brigade groups were about to smash into three panzer divisions, the 15th, the 21st, and the Ariete Panzer, along with Africa Corps' artillery, and Rommel was there to direct them all himself. And as General Norrie had put Messervy and Briggs in charge, if anything went wrong, they would need someone of a higher rank to get involved and send in reinforcements, which would take time. Or, as the future Field Marshal Michael Carver put it, the current logistics officer of the 7th Armored Division, if ever an operation resembled sticking one's arm into a wasp's nest, this did. Back in Cairo, C&C Auchinleck was starting to get a tingling sensation along his spine. Perhaps everything was not as rosy as Richie was saying it was. So the superior officer sent a message that said, Yes, you need to hurry and do something, but don't forget about pre-battle reconnaissance, nor should you leave your infantry unprotected by armor. Richie ignored the second part, and as far as the former, sent a message along that he had received from Messervy that read, Everything ready for tonight and plenty of time for Reese." the Battle of the Cauldron got underway. At 2.50 a.m. June 5th, the 10th Indian Brigade moved out. The pre-attack artillery barrage must have been staggering, as the Indians had no trouble reaching the heights of Aslog Ridge. Even better, as they spread out, they met little resistance and were able to report that by sunrise, all objectives had been taken. This solid opening move was sent to Bir el Hamat, about 8 miles or 13 kilometers southeast of Aslog Ridge, where both Messervy and Briggs had their headquarters. They were not literally beside each other, but relatively close. Handshakes and pats on the back started off their day. With this done, it was time for the 22nd Armored Brigade Group and the 9th Indian Brigade Group to take the lead and drive west past Aslog Ridge. But when the Allied thrust was about two miles beyond the ridge, they ran into the concentrated artillery of the Africa Corps. This was Rommel's idea, to destroy the enemy tanks with his anti-tank weapons, thus leaving his panzers free. But there were enough panzers in the area that they and the 156 Grant, Crusader, and Stuart tanks of the 22nd Armored Brigade Group started to mix it up. Soon the Allied tanks were pulling away from the men of the 9th Indian Brigade Group. It seems that Auchinleck's admonition of not skimping on reconnaissance was not followed. The actual line of the Axis position in the cauldron's eastern border was just two miles west of Aslog Ridge. Thus, that artillery barrage earlier that morning had destroyed rocks and cactuses, not Germans and Italians. As for the feint, that is, the Allied attack on the north side of the cauldron, on Sidra Ridge, where the 21st Panzer was, 
the Panzers tore into the tanks of the 32nd Army Tank Brigade. What was supposed to be a diversion ended up being a significant loss of Allied armor that was clearly going to be needed, and soon. Even worse, repulsing the 32nd Tank Brigade took place rather quickly, which left Rommel, the 21st Panzer, and the Ariete Panzer Divisions to use as he saw fit, and he had a use for them. First, Rommel had the two Panzer Divisions head east to push back the 9th Indian Brigade Group that was now unsupported by armor. Next, the 15th Panzer was told to ready themselves to move out because Rommel was going to lead them personally on their assignment. Using the face of a clock as a guide, if Oslog Ridge is in the center of the clock, the Allied attack had come from the 3 o'clock position and the two divisional headquarters were at 4 o'clock and Bir El Harmat officially was at the 5 o'clock position. At the 6 o'clock position was a part of the minefield, but Rommel had already had a path cleared through it to get to damaged panzers for possible retrieval. This was another thing Allied reconnaissance had not picked up on. The 15th Panzer, with Rommel in the lead, snaked their way through the minefield southwest of Bir El Harmat and smashed into the two divisional headquarters. Then he smashed into the 2 Indian Brigade Group headquarters. Then he smashed into a part of the 9th Indian Brigade Group not committed to battle. Then he smashed into some of the troops of the 10th Indian Brigade Group that had been pushed out of the cauldron earlier that day. To be sure, Messervy and Briggs had been given enough time to flee. Messervy moved his headquarters to the Knight's Bridge box, roughly due north by five miles, or eight kilometers from where he had been, where the Trig Campuzo and Trig Birhachem cross, and Briggs repositioned himself and his staff back at El Abdin, about 15 miles or 24 kilometers due east, or behind, Messervy's new headquarters. In other words, a proper retreat. Only after the staffs set up their new command did someone realize that in the cauldron with the bulk of Rommel's forces were three Indian battalions, one reconnaissance battalion, and four artillery regiments, unsupported by a supply line, air power, or armor. Of course, these men had no choice but to fight, and they did, hoping that help was on the way. It was not. The command structure, i.e. Messervy and Briggs, did not exist anymore. As the British official history reports, no help reached the doomed units in the cauldron, for although the 2nd and 4th Armor Brigades had been placed under General Messervy, who was now in sole command, he was unable, in the prevailing confusion, to bring them into action. A professional way of saying the left hand did not only know where the right hand was, they currently were not, or could not, speak to each other. Coordination was impossible. Normally, with such a disaster, Ritchie would have been removed. After all, he just suffered the following. The destruction of 10th Indian Brigade Group. Two battalions of 9th Indian Brigade Group were now destroyed. One battalion and all anti-tank guns of the 21st Indian Brigade Group were destroyed. Four regiments of artillery were lost, and now 8th Army, 
was down to 132 tanks. Again, normally, Ritchie would have been removed from his position had this information been sent to London. But there wasn't time, for Rommel was on the move. To be fair to Ritchie, he was trying to implement lessons that Rommel had already learned, i.e. close cooperation between the three arms, using darkness to get men into position, and the daylight to hit the enemy with fresh troops, after other units had done their night's work. Problem was, the British were still figuring out total war in the desert. But Rommel wasn't finished giving lessons. On the morning of June 7th, Ritchie wrote to Auchinleck, Yesterday was a day of hard fighting in which we suffered considerably, but I am confident that enemy suffered no less. How to put this? This was not a falsehood. It was an out-and-out lie. Rommel, besides losing a few men, some gas and shells, was unscratched, and he had the enemy on the run. What would he do with his victory? He would go after another. Rommel had known the British would attack the cauldron, and from what direction. So he planned for it. And now that it was over, he would return to taking Birhachim, about 12 miles or 19 kilometers south by southwest of Bir el-Harmat, where the Free French were dug in. Yes, General Marie-Pierre Koenig and his men had held back the 90th Light Division, but they had been helped by sandstorms and mines. This time, Rommel was coming personally, and the first thing that he would do was clear a path. The Desert Fox set June 8th as his date to see the end of the Free French position. At Birhachim, General Koenig and his men waited. There was little else they could do. Ritchie asked Auchinleck if the Free French should retreat before Rommel got there, but Auchinleck said no, for the simple reason that even if the Free French were completely wiped out, it would take Rommel time to do this, and Auchinleck needed that time to recover from the defeats of the last few days. Hopefully, more defeats were not forthcoming. Thus Koenig and officers like Captain Pierre Messer of the 13th Half Brigade of the French Foreign Legion settled in. To be sure, this force was international, as it had men of German and Spanish origin and numerous Jews. In fact, the Kaddish, a hymn praising God's name, was said most evenings. Other troops were French Polynesian, New Caledonian, and men from the New Hebrides. As for the men of the 13th Half Brigade, they had already faced the Germans at Narvik on May 27, 1940, during the Battle of Norway. They were hoping to do better this time. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, just want to say hi to a new member and thank some people who have donated. Um, David Wiss from Tea Tree, Australia. Thank you very much, David, for becoming a member. Um, let's see here. As far as those who have donated, um, I think this uh, list of names is a little longer than normal because it's been my birthday, September 21st. So, thank you all. Uh, let's see here. Richard Van Stolk. Thank you very much. Keenan Donahue. Dale Fowler, Julie Davin, uh, Michael Chapman, 
and a gentleman named Guy. Sorry, Guy didn't get your last name, but he sent a lovely message uh, along with his donation. And Gino, who liked the uh, Damian Lewis interview. So uh, thank you very much for that. So I will uh, see you as soon as I can with the next part of what happens in North Africa uh, next week. I will be in San Diego next week, but I'm going to uh, get it all ready before I take off and so because I want to go see the Battleship Midway and some other things. But anyway, so thank you for everyone who listens, and I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode. Take care, everyone. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm at the nail salon. What? I'm at the grocery store. What? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. 